This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine, considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Development. Um, so nervous system development. I know a lot of you guys in here are taking actually uh, the child development class with Dwayne Keo uh, in this very room on Mondays after this class. I don't want this chair. I don't want. There. So <clears throat> brain development or ner- and nervous system development, I guess in general, and behavioral development really ought to go together. What with behavior coming from the nervous system and all. So we shouldn't be surprised if we can look at developmental changes and see behavioral changes that go with them. So there's really three ways, and I think the book does this, we can look at three different ways, pretty common approach. Structural development of behavioral changes. So, there are things, for example, like, well, if you don't have certain parts of your nervous system, there's no way you can do certain things. So, if, what's a good example here? I don't know, like, babies, when they're first born, because the nervous system isn't finished developing for the motor system, they can, when they're first born, they can really only move the whole, their whole, like half their body at once. So when they go to move their right arm, their right leg goes with it. There's nothing they can do about that. Because the connections haven't been made yet to, oh, that's just for the arm, that's just for the leg, etc. And if you are a parent or you may remember this, and when you become a parent, you'll see this in the first couple of weeks, it's, they're not finished yet when they're born. They're not close to done. So when they come out, and you'll see something weird, like the kid will go to move his arm, and the whole body goes. And it's like, you're never going to walk, are you? Well, not in that state. No, eventually you do. Right? Or you can look at changes in Broca's area. Um, and neuronal growth in Broca's area, and say, well, we need to get a, a certain limit, sort of, sorry, a certain lower limit, to get to the point where we're going to be able to speak. And speak in this case doesn't have to mean uh, vocally you could be using sign language. Some sign language. We can go the other way. We can look at behavioral things and infer neural mechanisms. So there are stages of development, more or less, that one goes through. And this depends on... It's not as clear as, say, Piaget made it out to be, but... At some point, you can look at something like theory of mind, the, the ability to understand what others are thinking, and say, well, we have to, for example, if before a certain age, kids are, they have no idea how other people think. Right? We'll talk a bit about that. So that's called theory of mind. It's sort of like boring mind reading. Like, I can make the assumption right now how, what most of you were thinking roughly, 
right. I was uh, a student. Uh, I sat in classes. I heard lectures. I know roughly what's going on. I don't think you're all completely different, like your experience is completely different than mine. Right? When you're very young, you can't do that. Like before about three, three and a half, you just can't. Try having a conversation. We'll talk about it again this, this bit later, but have a conversation with a three-year-old. They have literally no idea how anything works. It's bizarre. When you actually talk to them, when you, you can have a conversation with a three-year-old. It's great. But then when you ask them something like, how do you think I figure out what's for dinner? And they'll just go, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they'll have nothing. They'll have no idea. Or something bizarre. So we can do that. That's a little harder because what's harder, it's going to be a little more fuzzy because we can look at these behavioral stages, these behavioral changes, and they're not going to be as clear either as being able to do a pincer grip, for example. Right? The thing that separates us from all the other animals, the ability to use all our digits independently, one of the things. So it's going to be a, it's a little more fuzzy. And then we can look at things that affect both. So we see things like uh, drugs. We just talked about drugs. We can see that drugs affect behavior and they affect neural development. Therefore, these two things must go together. So we can look at those. So that's sort of the three approaches you can take. I mean, they're going to be a combination, obviously. Okay. Uh, some interesting issues in development. I just like mentioning preformation because it's crazy. Do you know what preformation is in, in, in embry embryology? It's this crazy idea that if you look at a cell, you actually see little tiny, like horses are made up of little tiny horses. And people are made up of little tiny people. Of course, it's wrong. Please don't write down that's what happens. But the neat thing about it is um, when microscopes were first developed, people looked at cells, and it shows you that sort of what happens with sort of confirmation bias and sort of psychological processes that people said, yeah, I looked at these uh, cells and I saw little horses. Other people looked and said, no. So when you look at a, an embryo, for example, of a horse and a human and a lobster, they don't look that different, actually. They all look like shrimps. Basically, so preformation is the funny thing to mention. Um, so em embryos of different species are not that dissimilar. They're dissimilar in that you know uh, the number of chromosomes in a cell nucleus, obviously, and stuff like that. They're, they are clearly that's a human embryo, that's a horse, that's a lobster, but they aren't that different. It's kind of great. Evolution conserves things that work, basically. So any vertebrate, so we'll get rid of our lobster example, has a four-brained brain stem and a neural tube as an embryo. Okay. So I had, depending on when you downloaded these, uh, if you did downloaded them before yesterday at about 3 o'clock, you get a different fuzzy bad picture. If you downloaded that, you get this one. So... This is basically, they're, it's not actual size, they're much smaller. This is about all five weeks in, and here we're talking about something that's about between maybe three and four millimeters. Very small. And at five weeks, uh, anybody who's been pregnant or around pregnant, you don't know you're pregnant. Right? You don't have to know. You're not showing whatsoever. You'll probably be late. You'll probably be in a late period. 
But if you're someone who doesn't, who has sort of, uh, who isn't regular? really, yeah, regular, is that the right word? Yeah. I don't know what the word is. I'm a guy. <laughs> regular. I find it all a mystery. <laughs> it's like, I really, it's like, like hey, yeah, whatever works for you. Yeah, sort of a mystery to me. But yeah, yeah you've got a good schedule, whatever. You would notice. But if you're somebody that's a little more intermittent, you may not notice for a couple of months, actually, because sometimes you're late, sometimes you miss one. That happens to people, especially when they're younger. So it may be the case that you didn't even know until about three months in. Why am I always puking in the morning? <laughs> I know why. So you probably don't know yet, and you got something very small growing in you. So you take a look at this here. This is going to be the midbrain. Here's your forebrain. This is eventually, this is another name uh, for the hindbrain, in essence. Okay, the rhomboencephalon. So this is going to be the pons and the brain stem and all that. Okay, and then you've got a spinal column. And then there's all these labeled numbers, and I don't know what they are. I just found a nice diagram yesterday. Google Images is great. But you can see there at five weeks, this is not something that looks like a human or anything else. You wouldn't be able to tell it. But you can see that neural development's happening very quickly. It gets a kickstart before anything else. There's no eyes there. There's no mouth, right? But we're starting on the nervous system right away. What you're getting there basically is a really early stage of a, of a nervous system happening. All right. So gross development, I don't mean ew, I mean like the whole big thing. So what happens is at about 15 days, you've got a primitive body. So it starts to look like... Well, the first stage, of course, is you have a couple of drinks. Often. Um, now, the first stage, of course, you get a zygote, so a sperm and egg. And then you end up with basically uh, blastula, just a pile of cells. By 15 days, though, so a couple weeks in, you've got something that has a, very, a primitive body. Primitive means old or simple, right, in this case. So about 15 days in, you've got this primitive body. It's exceedingly small. This is something that we would measure. This is under a millimeter. Uh, one of the fun things, if you've got two kids, and then you have a second kid, the kid will say, how big is the baby? And you say, it's smaller than a peanut. For a long time, that's true. Um, at about three weeks, you get what's called a neural plate, which is eventually going to become the whole nervous system. And it's called a neural plate because it's basically a flat surface that will eventually curl up, form a neural tube. Okay. It's going to curl up, form a neural tube. That's going to eventually, you can probably guess, be a, uh, a spinal column. And everything's going to come from this neural plate. And also, then it's going to, at the top, you're going to get diencephalon, mesencephalon, etc. This plate, as I said, curls up, forms a neural, so it goes like this. The groove, and then it curls and closes. You get a tube. This is about, here two, we're talking about six weeks. Five, six weeks. 49 days, it's human-like. Human-like in that it doesn't look like a shrimp so much anymore. It looks like a really weird-looking, small baby with clear skin. Like, it doesn't 
you would never look at that and go, well, that's a baby. Right? You would look at that and go, that's a weird looking doll or something. Right? But at seven weeks, so that's, yeah, 49 weeks, seven weeks, you've got something that looks enough like a fetus or a baby, they start calling it a fetus rather than an embryo. It's not viable. It doesn't know anything. There's no thinking going on there, almost certainly. But you look at it and you'd say, yeah, that looks like a human. Looks like a human. It's not a horse. So this diagram is actually kind of useful, though it's kind of fuzzy. But it gives you the idea as you go along, so you can look more closely at that if you wish, um, of the different stages that happen here and where everything comes from. See how everything's coming in? So neural plate, neural tube, and basically the whole nervous system grows out of the back. That's sort of schematic, but I like this one better. Transitions are nice, huh? Oh, it looks horrible. It looks better over here. It does look better. So at 25 days, again, we see this here. What we're looking at, we'll call that an embryo. 35 days. See, it's going pretty. Look at how quick this is happening, though. We're starting to get cortex being formed and, and limbic system and all this. 50 days. That's seven weeks. Like I said, it's starting to look enough like a person, like a human. That you call it, you look at it and go, yeah, it's probably a human. 100 days, 100 days, what's that, about 14 weeks, right? Ish? 14 weeks, two days. So, yeah. We can now talk about midbrain, we can talk about cerebellum, we can talk about the pawns being there and the medulla. Five months. So if you look here, though, actually, there's not much. That's eventually going to be. Oh, it's just Five months, though, we've got something. Look, notice that there's, there's no sulky and gyrate, right? It's pretty much smooth. It's like a cat brain or something. Showing that you're pregnant yet, but here you are. You know you're pregnant. I mean, and people can tell. If you tell people, they don't have to ask you, are you pregnant? They don't, they don't, people aren't looking, looking at you going, what if that person's pregnant? They go, that person's pregnant. So this is nine months is at birth, and you can see that we now have sulky and gyre, but the interesting thing is, not all the sulky and gyre. Development isn't finished, not even close. I mean, it's closer to being finished than it is to start. Yeah, it's very exciting. As far as complexity goes. As far as time goes now. Okay. Gotta get a better picture of that, too. That's a bad skin. Okay, questions? 
So sexual differentiation is going on throughout growth and use, right? The womb. So you'll often hear people say that the natural state of things is female, which is stupid. It's not right. But I can tell you that if there, was, there is no intervention by testosterone, you end up with something that looks phenotypically like a girl. I'm not assigning it any gender here. I'm saying it phenotypically will be a girl. No matter X, Y, or XX chromosomes. So if there's no testosterone, and being a little bit simplistic there, but if there's no testosterone, there's not going to be... You know, what happens is testosterone masculinizes the fetus. So a bunch of other things happen, and these sort of ambiguous sex organs that we have, for example, when we're fetuses, either are left alone and become ovaries and uteruses and all those wonderful things, or they get acted upon and become penises and testes, and I guess I'll just say this to be equal for everyone, all those wonderful things. So testosterone masculinizes the fetus. It turns it into a boy, phenotypically. You can assume what I'm saying turns it into a boy. I'm saying phenotypically. I'm not assigning gender to anything. Don't all start carrying signs outside my house. We're members of the indignation committee. And we... Some of these are just for me, apparently. Anyway, so it's not just the genitals, right? But it's the brain, too. Wouldn't you be surprised? It's interesting, by the way, in a newborn baby, a newborn boy, you can see some interesting things. Like there's a seam in the scrotum that's easy to see where it, what would have become a vagina closed up. Which isn't always evident in an adult, but it is, in a, especially a newborn baby. Newborn baby boy, you look, and you, they're, it's very small, and it's weird because you have to look very closely, and then that's kind of odd. But it's your own baby, and you're cleaning it. God, they make a mess. <laughs> Girls are so much easier to change because there's fewer nooks and crannies. So it's going to masculinize the brain, probably. There's going to be some differences. We talked about spatial differences and verbal differences, basically. So that's really what we're going to be interested in. It's also the case that. Males, on average, male humans are more aggressive than females. Again, this is, I've talked about on average, this would be about, I've said many times, let's say spatial and verbal ability. So I can't pick a woman out of here and say she's, if we gave her an aggression, aggression a questionnaire and one to me, that she'd be more aggressive than me or I'd be more aggressive than her. I'm pretty aggressive. But if we took all the guys in here, let's have some of the guys we have in here today. Yeah, it'd probably work. We'd take all the guys and then we randomly select the same number of women because there's only one in the guys. So we do that. I bet we'd find that if we gave them a bunch of situations, little stories, and we said, how would you solve this? And the guys are more likely to say, well, punch him in the face. Because, um, you know, we could also use something, we get people frustrated and see how angry they get. It's easy to frustrate people, just give them a series of impossible math problems and tell them that a four-year-old can do them. <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's not funny, but it's fun. I'm a four-year-old, kid in grade four. Give them some impossible math questions. That's easy to develop those, right? Say, uh, the average 10-year-old, 9-year-old can do these. Try. 
and then watch how, and then count how many times people swear. There's all kinds of fun things you can do with that. Okay, you might say, well, that's yeah, but men are in our in Western cultures, men are socialized to do that. That's true. That's true. What if we had people who were raised as girls because they were born phenotypically to be girls, but turned out that they had a testosterone-laden environment in their womb, but they didn't develop female genitals. So they were assigned the sex of girl. You think, well, that's an unethical experiment. Yes, nature doesn't have an ethics panel. So there's a disorder called 5-alpha reductase. Uh, sometimes syndrome, whoops, that's an or deficiency is a more common term now. I think I misspelled deficiency. Do I have some deficiency? I think it should be. And a silent four in the middle. <laughs> so, okay. The testosterone that turns a fetus into a boy. It's actually not testosterone that's produced at that point by the testes of the little boy. It's, it's dihydrotestosterone. It's almost testosterone. And there's an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase that basically turns dihydrotestosterone into testosterone. Okay? Pretty simple. And it works almost all the time. <coughs> except in a small, very vanishingly small subset of people. Now, with some people, it, they have so little 5-alpha reductase that they actually are born looking like girls. They're phenotypically girls. But they've had all this dihydrotestosterone floating around in the uterus, and it's masculinized their brain. Here's our natural experiment. Because we're going to have people who are raised as little girls. Now, at puberty, it's not the hydrotestosterone. It's just testosterone. It causes things like sexual, uh, secondary sexual characteristics. Right? Broad shoulders, deep voice. Facial hair. Hmm. So suddenly now we have people who hit about 12, and suddenly they start looking like boys. Right? So they even raise these girls. And their clitoris grows into a penis. That's got to be a surprise, right? What happened? You know. So what's happened in this case is people have been raised as girls, and then they become boys, basically. This is exceedingly rare. It's exceedingly rare. It is one family line in the Dominican Republic. Really, pretty much. Okay. In this case, we've got people who are raised as girls in a very sex-type society, much more than ours. Raised as girls and become, they hit 13 and they change, uh, their, their, their sex role changes, now they're labeled boys. So now we can take a look at girls raised, who have 5-alpha reductase, like everyone in this room almost certainly, 
and then people with 5-alpha reductase and compare reports, this is the, only, this is the issue here, it's self-report, of, of, of their childhoods and how they behaved. Um, and people with 5-alpha reductase syndrome tend to have had more rough and tumble play and tend to have scored better in math and spatial skills at school than the control group of girls. There's something going on. You can also look at a a disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which involves uh, an overabundance of epinephrine, adrenaline, mimicking testosterone and masculinizing to more or less an extent female fetuses. This is a little more common. It's still really rare. These are pretty rare things. And we get similar results there. So there's something going on with the brain and and, and sex hormones. Something. It's not some huge thing that that we should worry a great deal about, but I think it's scientifically interesting, okay? Questions about that? These are both very rare disorders. Um... It's one of these things, by the way, if you're thinking of having, getting pregnant or you are pregnant, the chance that you're carrier of one of these things is, is almost zero. The chance that you carry this, unless you're from the Dominican Republic, is literally zero. It's been traced, like I said, it's in one line of, and this is pretty rare. Okay? You think you're, by the way, when you're pregnant the first time, you literally think your kid probably will have everything. It's like that. Second one, you're like, yeah, whatever. It's like when they're born. The first kid, you're afraid, you stand there, you literally stand there and watch, them. are they breathing? Are they breathing? Are they breathing? And then you wake them up and you go, oh, but it's alive. Right? First one drops a soother on the, you know, a little sus, a soother, a sucker, drop it on the ground, you throw it away. Second one, you, run, you put it under boiling water. Third one, you run it off in the tap water. Fourth one, your dog licks it and you just give it back to the kid. You just, you can't break them. So I'm saying, you hear about, it's like, you know, you're about medical students' disease. Medical students think they have everything. Same thing with uh, people take psychopathology. They think they have every psychopathology. You don't, almost certainly. So you do feel that you've got, that's why I just want to warn you that you hear about these things, you think, that's got to be a tough road for the kid. It is, but it's rare. Okay? Says the professor who has a genetic disorder that one in 17,000 people have. So, now... This, the neural tube is lined. Questions about that stuff I just talked about? Okay. By the way, when 5-alpha reductase was first found, reductase syndrome, um, people, it seemed like the only case was people who sort of at puberty went from girl to boy parts. It's a little more nuanced. There's a different levels. Anyway, uh, the neural, neural stem cells line the neural tubes. So they basically fill these stem cells. Stem cells are undifferentiated cells that can become different types of cells. And they divide exceedingly quickly. Um, Now, we have stem cells as adults, neural stem cells. And in fact, there is some neurogenesis in the adult brain. It's so little that often you're told that there isn't any, because 
compared to when you're developing, it's, it's basically, it's so many orders of magnitude. I mean, it's like four orders of magnitude bigger in a, in, a, in a developing fetus than it is in an adult human. In other words, it's 10,000 times more, so you can just sort of go, nah, it's not really, it's not There's a little bit in hippocampus dentigyrus in adults. It's happening in all of us right now, but we measure it in maybe hundreds a day. Well, it's more than four. God, it's probably like eight or nine orders of magnitude bigger. So millions. Billions. So these cells divide, divide again like normal cells, non-neural cells. Adult stem cells divide, but one of the daughter, daughter cells dies. Usually, again, we do have some neurogenesis in adults. So stem cells become neuroblasts or glioblasts. You can probably guess that means that they're going to be eventually become either neurons or glial cells. So neuroblasts and glioblasts come from the same place, neural stem cells. Okay? They're the same, the origin's the same. Question so far. So you can see why stem cell research would be interesting here, because we want to take stem cells and we want to regrow things, well, they have the, they can potentially become all kinds of different cells, different neural cells. And fetal stem cells are, are interesting because, well, they, there's something interesting about them, something that they, they divide and divide and divide, rather than divide one die, divide one die. So embryonic stem cells, I should say embryonic, really not fetal. Embryonic stem cells are what's used in research. Embryonic stem cells are what's used, uh, will eventually be used in treatments for things neural. And these are embryos that are left over from in vitro fertilization. Right? Because when you go for IVF, you get, they don't just do one. Because they aren't all going to work. Okay, so how does a cell know what it's supposed to become? And this is a great question, because every cell, you look at the cell nucleus of a neuron and a glial cell and freaking epithelial cells, like skin cells, they're all the same chromosomes in them. So the genetic blueprint's there and everything. It's like, what's going on? How, do they, how does a heart cell know to be a heart cell and not an eye cell? Ew, got an extra eye in my heart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Keep an eye on your heart. Like, ooh, I've got a blockage. <coughs> Stop eating so many fried things. Getting late in the term. I'm not editing out anything. Uh, <laughs> so basically, genes are turned on and off. It's, it's basically the, the environment that the cell is in turns certain things on or off. Genetics and environment interactions always the way, right? So it's the chemical environment. So if, I'm not sure I can pronounce these things correctly, I'm pretty sure I know what that one is. If these 
undifferentiated cells, these undifferentiated neural stem cells, get epidermal growth factor, they become what are called progenitor cells. You can also guess, by the way, that epidermal growth factor is something that's important in growth of skin, which it is. And in fact, epidermal growth factor is released when oh, I cut my finger this morning. It's being released right now to repair my finger. It's causing growth of skin cells, as I speak, around this scrape I got when I was trying to find my headphones. It's a brick wall. No depth perception. Now, progenitor cells get basic fibroblast growth factor. Yeah, didn't say fibroblasts. They become neuroblasts. So progenitor cells can either become neurons eventually or glial cells. If they don't get BFGF, they stay as progenitor cells and, might, and, and then their, their next series of growth factors they get will turn them into, if they don't get BFGF, well, they'll become different kinds of glial cells. Okay? Neuroblasts happen when progenitor cells get basic fibroblast growth factors. If you ever look in the PowerPoint things and you see the notes things, that's when I can't remember, that it's like, I'm going to screw this up. And that's why I have Can you say that again? Sorry, if the Yeah, yeah, sure. Cells. So EGF hits neural stem cells. Yeah. And they become progenitor cells. Yeah. Progenitor cells now can do one of two things. Okay. So we've got. Neural stem cells. If they get, well, they all will eventually get EGF, which may, turns them into progenitor cells. If they get BFGF, they become neuroblasts. If they get other stuff, they become glioblasts. And then that turns into the, what, the five different kinds of glial cells, whatever it is, seven, I think. It's always seven. Yeah. Different kinds of neurons. Okay? Oh, it's way more complicated than this, by the way. The key things I want you to know Go do a graduate degree in behavioral neurobiology. You learn all about this. And then come back and tell me, because be, of the like 15 signaling pathways, I understand like three of them. So I'm not gonna lie to you. Remember that first point in your life in like elementary school when you realized your teacher didn't know everything? I was always this kid at school. Yeah, but <laughs> I must have been a real joy to teach. Um, okay, at peak, look, in humans, we get, we measure 
neurogenesis in the hundreds, maybe the thousands in a day. In a fetus, at the peak rate, a peak growth time, and this is between four and six months. Yeah, gestation. <laughs> 250,000 a minute. It's faster. So you can see why we just say in adults, you, know, you don't make any more. Because in essence, compared to this, there's nothing anymore. That seems like a lot. It's very fast. Remember, we're not just making neurons, we're also making glial cells. But we're going from something that is, it starts out as an accident because mommy and daddy had too much to drink, and in nine months, it's a human. Right? And that's when you have, when your kid's born, that's when you have that moment when you look and go, I don't need to make friends anymore, I can make my own people. Hmm. Okay. Guess how many stages of brain development there are? Uh, the book has uh, different names for some of these. Uh, they're, it's all the same thing. And I'll have a diagram in a second that has different names, but they're, they're all basically the same thing. So cell birth, we talked about that. Migration. So the cells move to where they're going to end up. I think I have a video I'll show you eventually, maybe next time, of cell migration. It's an amazing thing to watch. It's in a rat brain, but it works the same. Differentiation. So they get there, they differentiate, turn into different kinds of cells. Maturation, that means growing. Synaptogenesis, a synapse. Basically what's happening here is the axon grows out and starts looking for a dendrite. And I know, and you know, that there are six other kinds of synapse, uh, chemical synapses. But they go out looking for, let's just say, dendrites to make things easy. Cell death, wait. Well, it doesn't always happen. Some of the cells, that, brain cells, majority of them actually die when you die. But there are a lot that are made and you don't need. So they don't actually get a synapse, they die. program cell death. When you think about this, neurons are really expensive to maintain. If they aren't doing anything, having them die makes a great deal of sense. So it's just program cell death. And then we get myelinogenesis. This is basically the growth of myelin. Some of these things are happening. Synaptogenesis, I would imagine, is happening in all of us right now. In fact, I, I will guarantee it's happening in all of us right now. Because you're all learning things right now, and that's probably new synapses, right? We talked about that. Uh, cell death, I'm sure that's happening in all of us right now. Right? Some of them die. Myelinogenesis is in a lot of you people in here probably still happening. This is into your 20s. It can be in your 20s. Okay. This diagram is helpful. So this is gestation, and then we're talking to adulthood, so we get birth. Neurulation, that's the cell birth. Proliferation, growth. Migration, you see there. Myelination, look at the migration, rather myelination. See, that's happening into adulthood, just a past adolescence, which is where most of you guys are. Not adolescence, just past adolescence. I have maturity than adolescence. Well, not really, much younger. I've often described myself as a 12-year-old with access to alcohol and a pretty decent income. 
There's a cell death, and there's a genesis. So you see these things, some of these things are happening, they're all happening before birth, but some of these things are actually happening into adulthood. Which makes sense. I mean, the rest of you is still growing, too, right? So. So this the little line for synaptogenesis, is it stopping because it goes oh, down, or no, is it no, just... what, it, what it's saying here is basically everything's hooked up now. Now it's, this is, this is more like pre-programmed stuff. So learning language, learning things that everybody does, let's put it that way. Whereas it's not talking about just learning new facts or anything like that about the world. So this is things that are going to be happening in anyone. So yeah, we're hitting, this, this basically is saying, this goes on to an, you know, almost adulthood. It takes kind of a Piaget view, obviously, this chart here. I guess that there are things that you just can't learn until you're ready for them, right? But everybody eventually can, you develop normally. So I don't know, let's think of something. Really abstract things about, really abstract mathematical concepts, perhaps. Yeah. Things like it's hard to learn calculus when you're seven. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay. And this is some of, the, some of this stuff here, by the way, is why you see people saying that young people shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. Nobody should do any drugs up because uh, their brains are still going. We shouldn't let people vote at 18. They shouldn't vote until they're 25. Teenagers are different than everyone else, and they just don't under they're not they don't think like us. Shut up. Don't take this and justify your stupid anti-young people sentiment, you crusty old bastard. <laughs> and no, seriously, that's how I feel about these things. Because these this is all true, by the way. It's like I'm telling you, this is bullshit. This is true. I'm saying saying that young people can't make intelligent decisions because all oh, their mind isn't there yet. It's just a bullshit excuse to not let young people act. Make adult decisions. Pisses me off a little, as you can kind of tell. <laughs> I, I hate things like that when people take simple, really simple, just facts about sort of neural development or anything about sort of neuroscience or psychology and then say, so therefore, it's like, yeah, and how much of this stuff do you actually know anything about? There's this real kind of trend right now of. Do an experiment and then say, well, what pilots put it with an MRI and do the experiment? Why? Sort of fake neuroscience, trendy bullshit really bugs me. Yeah. All right, so editorial over. Okay. So you might say, I guess, and this is true, that if any trauma that happens, any insult, within reason to the nervous system happens early on in development, it's going to be easier to fix it. Not as easy as people make it out to be. I mean, there, again, there's this notion that uh, if you have you know, oh, you don't need uh, well, actually, our cases, this is weird, uh, babies losing a finger and regrowing. Newborn babies. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, there are cases, there was a woman, there was a case last year, two years ago, a woman found out she didn't have a cerebellum. She's 21 years old. 
She always had some problems with balance. <laughs> no doubt. And she went to get, uh, she had an MRI done. I was like, migraine, I think she was having migraines. And so she went, and very often when they can't figure out other stuff, they'll give you a migraine, just make sure it's not something really serious. And you know, you're, um, uh, hey, Steve, come here. Look at this. Is there anything wrong here? Uh, Steve is named one of the MRI techniques. I'm doing, I'm doing, this is a scene I'm doing. <laughs> I don't think she's got a cerebellum. Neither do I. We should write this up. That's what happened. And she's living a pretty much normal life. She has not very good balance. Pretty amazing. Now, of course, she was born without a cerebellum. I took yours out. You'd be screwed. Right? There are cases of people who are born literally with half their brain. So just one um, hemisphere develops. The other hemisphere, you get basically a great big cyst developing. That's happened. And there are people like that that have... Not, they, always, they were end up, for example, always in a wheelchair, of course, because half their body, their body can't be controlled. But there are cases where people like that can end up living pretty much normal lives. But they're born that way. You go take it out now, we got a problem. The migration part takes about six or seven weeks, as you noted there. And then differentiation kicks in. Um, Cells in different regions that are going to become different parts of the brain turn into different kinds of neurons. So if you're going to what's going to become hippocampus, base, a whole bunch of uh, signaling, releasing factors are uh, interact with these cells, and you end up with, I don't know, pyramidal cells in that case, right? If it's in cerebellum, you get Purkinje cells. Whatever. So what happened? How do they get there? Well, these cells... Some of the some of these progenital progenitor cells become what are called radial glial cells. Radial glial cells are pyramidal cells because they're shaped pyramidally; they're not neurons, okay? And they have really long. They have a little a nucleus in the middle, and, a, and they extend uh, for a great distance compared to other cells. And they radiate out. from the neural tube and later from the ventricles. And what happens is, as they grow, they pull neurons along with them. So these neurons, neuroblasts that are going to become different kinds of neurons, kind of hitch a ride on what's called the radial glial road. It's really neat. I'll show you a picture in a second. I've got a couple pictures there. This works the same way in all of us, like, you know, things with nervous systems, so it's pretty neat. And the layers of the cortex develop from the inside out, as you would guess. So here's some pictures, here from rats. So you can see here, these are these radial glial cells. See how long these cells are? And what they're doing is they're pulling along these neurons from these not-so-dense areas to denser areas where they're, sorry, from the denser areas where they're growing to the not-so-dense areas where they need to go. And you can see the hair, those little stripes here. Those are, that's the radial glial rub. So I'm going to show you a video. Okay. Let's hope this just starts. This just 
start, or do I have to push it? Push it right here. No, don't do that. No, you're not doing it right This is going to be the ventric, ventric, ventricular zone, the VZ. This is, see how it's going? So that's the radioglial cell. And that's a, neuro, a neuroblast being pulled along the radioglial cell. This is 160 minutes of recording time, so you can see how long this is. And this is going, we would measure this in, well, you could use millimeters, but you'd be using a lot of decimal places. It's a small <laughs> map. That's pulling it along. <laughs> That's really cool, right? Follow the 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 follow Minutes, and you can see how slow this is going to be. Let's see how it starts to move. It's going to be here. Come on. There it goes. So you can see, if that's the size of a cell, this is not a great distance. This isn't like we don't measure this in meters. This is just a short space. So this is how you're, you're, you're developing brain cells get to where they're supposed to be. And that's pretty cool to see it actually. Well, not live, but <clears throat> see a video that it, uh, it's very neat. Sometimes people say to me, you know, you don't have a. When you know stuff like this, there's no, you, it's no fun because you have no wonder about anything. It's like, oh, no, no, no. That's wondrous right there. Nature's really cool. That's pretty neat. Is there another section of this or another? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Oh, that's, that's it. Thick. All right. Questions about that? It's pretty cool, right? That's pretty neat. Yeah. So, the stages of Maturation, you get dendritic branching, so you get dendrites grow first, and they grow pretty slowly. Axons grow pretty quickly. They, they grow out, and again, we're only talking about axodendritic synapses. That's the most common one. Go out and basically try to find a synapse. I'm oh, sorry, try to find a dendrite, a synapse. So axonic growth is guided by basic, basically by a bunch of uh, different uh, signaling uh, factors and releasing factors. So it's a chemical environment. There's no other way to do it. Sorry. Yeah, there'd be no other way to do it, right? It's there, there, there. I don't know why I did that. I just thought it was a waste of time. So a human has that many synapses in their nervous system. That should be 1.0 times 10 to the 14th. That seems like a lot. So this couldn't just be programmed into a cell. 
uh, sorry, yeah, into a cell, into the genetic code. There's no way this would be hardwired into everyone. And in fact, it would be not very good if it was always hardwired because then if anything changes in the world, we wouldn't be ready to adapt to it, right? And you gotta remember, some human neurons and cortex have as much as 10,000 synapses on their own. So again, it's got to be chemical messages saying, come here, come there. There's nothing else it could be. There's no way you could set something up this complicated without it reacting to the environment. So cell death has been thought of in terms of what's called neural Darwinism. <laughs> neural Darwinism is the notion that, I don't like the use of the term Darwinism here because it's different than Darwin's about fitness, reproductive fitness. This is about sort of use it or lose it. So if cells don't synapse, but up to a certain point, they die. It's sort of the idea of only the strong survive, survival of the fittest in terms of like big and strong like bull, which is really not what fitness means. So I don't really like the term neural Darwinism. It, it gets the point across, but I don't, it, it's not what Darwinism really is, so I kind of like it, but it's in the literature, everybody uses the term, so I'm not gonna say it's not a thing. I just don't like the use of the term Darwinism. By the way, my all-time favorite definition of neural Darwinism on a test. See, this is a good, that's a good definition. Happens during the stage of development, cell death, not like Darwinism. The person said, it's about neurons, and you like Darwin. <laughs> Both things true, zero. <laughs> right? I mean, The definition questions you get are good. Like the answer, some of them. The best one I ever got is teaching statistics and robustness, which is you know the uh, how much a statistical test can stand up to violations of its assumptions. And a person wrote, uh, "This is just a quiz with like one percent." The quality in beer uh, given by choicest hops and barley. And I said, "Well, yeah, sure, one out of one. That's fine." And power, Lori Bloomfield, when I taught Lori, many of you know Dr. Bloomfield, when I taught her statistics, her definition of power was what you have over us. <laughs> yeah, sure, one. You know. When that little quiz is worth very little, I do give out the odd mark for snarky answers. <laughs> so what, what cells need is something called NGF, neural growth factor. This happens when... There's, uh, when, a, when an axon synapses onto a dendrite, again, to be simplistic, the dendrite releases something called neural growth factor. Neural growth factor turns off the gene that kills the cell. So NGF is what's keeping the, the, your cells from, from programmed cell death. So there's, again, your neural Darwinism idea. There's competition among cells. There's competition for synapsing. And if one cell can synapse here, then another cell can synapse in exactly the same place. And it doesn't get a GF, and it does. So that's the idea of the Darwinism part of it. It's like, there's competition. It's a life and death struggle. OK. But it's not about reproductive success. So that's where I kind of quibble with the term. So brains are expensive. 
so they should be efficient, and that's what's going on here. Now, some cells aren't programmed to die till well after birth, right? So, for example, uh, there are cells in. Oh, let's go. Let's go with language. Let's go with Broca's area, right? Um, when you're learning a language, learning your mother tongue or tongues. When you're born with the ability, or you will have the ability, to, to make every phoneme possible in every language spoken on Earth. Right? You can. You just can. But by the time you get about five or six, and definitely by the time you get 12, if you've never made those sounds, you, you have to relearn how to make them. They don't come naturally to you. Right? Because the, 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 the program that's in there to make the r at the back of your throat, if you're trying to speak French, which is a hard thing to do, as most of you in this room know, sitting through grade seven French, going rouge. Your teacher's going, no, 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 c'est pas ça, c'est rouge. They're laughing at my Quebec accent. Uh, <laughs> right? And it's hard to do. You have to learn, like I had to learn to go r. It's a hard thing to learn how to do. Right? Because, but when you're four, it's easy. It's trivial. You can make, you know the amazing thing is? You don't like to hear like uh, the languages of, of some people in Sub-Saharan Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa that have all those clicks in them? You could do that too. You can't do it now, but you could have done it when you were three if you were around that language because the cells died. You didn't make those noises. Again, you can relearn how to do them, but it's natural when you're little. So this is why you can get someone who, if they're brought up with two languages, can speak both languages with a perfectly unnoticeable accent. Best example I can think of that you may have heard speak both English and French was uh, the, the, the father of our current prime minister, Pierre Trudeau. Justin's pretty good in both languages, but his father's much more eloquent. And uh, you couldn't tell he was that he, he, he was a Francophone, except you couldn't tell he was an Anglophone. When he spoke English, he just sounded like a guy speaking English, an educated guy speaking English. When he spoke French, he just sounded like an educated guy speaking French. Right. I remember when my wife first met my grandfather, who was raised bilingually, and she said, when she was speaking with him, she said, he talks like an old, just like an old French Quebecer. I said, because that's what he is. But then when he spoke English, he wouldn't know. So the cells have died to make those noises. You can, again, you can relearn them, right? But it's a lot more effort. Teaching a three-year-old to say rouge is easy. Teaching a 12-year-old to do it, and you just get back rouge, is harder. Because they, they can't, and then there's the vowels, too. I don't call it the vowels. My lips hurt. Like, my face hurts for a day after speaking French. It's like, I don't use that. My face doesn't do that. Like, on that strange note, uh, we'll end for today, and we'll continue talking about the stuff. We'll finish the stuff up on, two, on Monday. Remember, on Wednesday, we'll do some reviews, so come with questions. Thanks, everyone.
listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>